Let's join the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are the rock of ages. You are the cleft in which we are sheltered. And that if, for, if we were to be unsheltered, Lord, we could not stand before your judgment, before your holiness, before your glory. But Lord, each and every one of us approaches you because of your provision, because of you are our refuge. You have provided us the protection from your just wrath in your Son. And God, we thank you and praise you. We thank you, Lord, that you are a holy God and help us to grow in our understanding of your holiness this morning. And Father, we thank you that, that we remind, we're reminded that just as you are holy, we ought to be holy as well. Help us to grow in that as we worship and serve you in this church and in our lifetime. And may you do a work in each one's heart. Minister to each one gathered. Speak to them exactly what they need to hear, Lord, from your word today. And Father, we pray that you continue to build your church through the proclamation of your word. May you cause us a Bible to be that salt and light that you've called us to be in our world. Help us to be faithful, to live for you in light of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to the book of Numbers today. Numbers chapter 4 is where we're going to be. Numbers chapter 4. Uh, and we're just kind of working our way through Numbers. Thank you, worship, by the way, for those songs of, 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 of praise and, and worship the Lord. And Numbers chapter 4 is where we're going to be. I love this, the focus on God's holiness. And that's kind of be one of the key themes in this, this chapter today, Numbers chapter 4. Not many of us have jobs that are life and death. Not many of us, right? Now, unless you happen to be maybe a police officer, fireman, or maybe a, a heart surgeon, uh, which a couple of us may be, but not many of us, our jobs are not life or death. You know, if you're careless in your work, if you're unable to do your work, people aren't going to die, right? People are going to live. Um, and, uh, but there are jobs out there, like our, you know, our policemen, firefighters, our, our medical, a lot of our, med- of our medical professionals are life and death jobs uh, that... Um, that do, uh, that do require us to be careful, uh, and they do require us to be, uh, have that, the right ability to do our work. Even this past week, I was thinking, as many of you read the news, have been reading the news, of uh, the life and death uh, work of, of our soldiers, uh, United States, our military soldiers. Uh, you, many of us saw the, read the reports of the uh, suicide bombings that led to the death of 13 uh, U.S. Uh, soldiers, along with countless more Afghanistan civilian lives. And uh, I think uh, our hearts and prayers as a church are, ought to remember some of those, uh, the many families, the soldiers' families, as well as the Afghanistan citizens and their families who've lost loved ones. Uh, uh, but uh, um, but in, in, as we pray for them, we, the, we understand the so many soldiers who signed up understand that their work is a, a work of life and death. It, it is something that, that oftentimes will face life and death. And, and maybe you have a job like that and you understand the, the, just the, the, the constant um, pressure that that brings. Thankfully, uh, for most of us, our, our jobs are not like that. And uh, thankfully, many of us uh, have jobs that we can uh, um, just w- leave and walk away even if we're not... Uh, maybe on our uh, on our uh, on our top game, we can walk away, uh, not having 
died ourselves or not having uh, let anyone else done, uh, cause someone else's death. In the Old Testament, there is a, a work that is a life and death work, and that is the, the work of the Levites, uh, the priests, the descendants of Levi. Theirs was a job that was a life or death job. How they went about their work could result in uh, the death, not only of themselves, but it could result in the death of those that they ministered to. And in Numbers chapter 4 that we're going to look at today, we're going to take a closer look at the work of these Levites whom God called to serve in the temple, or in the tabernacle and later on in the temple. The Levites bore the dangerous responsibility of working for a holy God. And as we look at Numbers chapter 4, God's instructions to Moses and to Aaron to, to number these, these Levites, these working Levites, reminds us and teaches us about God's holiness, that that's whom they serve, and the need for holiness in the lives of those who serve a holy God. And as brothers and sisters, followers of Christ, worshipers and servants of Christ today, you and I are servants of this same holy God. And he is a holy God, still just the same as always, and he requires holiness of his servants who serve him in the work that he calls us to. As a preparation for us to kind of just review, to go into this chapter, Numbers 1 to 4, chapters 1 to 4, cover the, the first census of, taken by Israel while in the Sinai wilderness. And if you kind of just remember, we're kind of talking the, the whole... Um, uh, the, whole, the whole first four chapters is, is, a, is a census of the Israelites. And you recall, it basically, the first, four, first two chapters was a census of all the, the, military, uh, the military soldiers. All the, the, the 12 tribes were kind of centered around the tent of meeting, and they, were, they all each had their place. They each had their marching orders. They each had their, their, leader, the, uh, their leading tribes that they would follow. Into the, and this was how they camped, and there was instruction about how they would march, etc. Those were the first two chapters. In chapters 3 to 4, we see now a further, a further census of those who are the Levites, those who are a little further in from the soldiers, the military, the warriors. Now we look at the worship leaders, the Levites whole, and they're divided into four different, three different families, really, the, we see that we looked at in chapter 3, along with Aaron and, and his sons, uh, that made kind of four groups, four sides, and they were responsible for the various elements of, uh, of, the worship, of their worship service. In chapter 3 and chapter 4 are kind of similar in that they're still talking about the same group of people. But whereas chapter 3 kind of focused on where, uh, essentially where they were placed, their, their place around the tent of meeting, chapter 4 is a little more concerned with the work of those, of those uh, Levites. And we're going to look at that today. Uh, just kind of do some distinguishing features between chapter 3 and chapter 4. is chapter 3 numbered all the Levites from one month old and up. One month in order, and that was important because the Levites were uh, were were given were chosen by God to serve Him because they would they were a one for one redemption of the firstborn sons of Israel. Right? We looked at that last week, or last time. But in chapter four, the, the census now not the, of one month in order, but it's a census of the Levites that are between thirty and fifty years old, and that t- itself tells a different story. So it's, it tells us it's it's focuses on the work. What, you, what you're going to do in, in, as a Levite in uh, the tabernacle. So just, you know, that's kind of how we will break, kind of can delineate, differentiate between chapter 3, chapter 4. It, it is a numbering, chapter 4 is a numbering of all those who are called to enter into the service of the work of the tabernacle. 
They're, called, they're, they're qualified. They're of a certain age. They're of some ability. They're going to go in, and it is a holy service to a holy God that requires holiness in caring about their work. And so for us today, we're going to look at this census. It breaks it down pretty, pretty obviously into four parts. There are four parts, four groups, if you will, of the census of these working Levites that remind us of the holiness of God. So the big theme is the holiness of God and the need for holiness in the, of those who serve God. And that's what we're going to look at today, and hopefully uh, the, the outline will just kind of lend us towards understanding our own need uh, to understand that our work is holy too as we serve God, and our own need just by encouragement and application uh, to strive for holiness. So that's, hopefully that will encourage you, okay? Let's take a look then at point number one, and that is the first part of the census of these working love arts. It was a census of the, what we call the group called the Kohathites, the Kohathites, the Kohathites. And these are, these are basically, the, we're going to go through basically the different families of the Levites, and the Kohathites are going to be, we're going to see that they're responsible, their work primarily involves the most holy things. Let's call it the most holy things, so the, the most holy objects sometimes some translations might have. The Lord uh, begins again in this chapter, just as he has in every other chapter, uh, uh, to speaking with Moses. So that reminds us that it is, these are not just man's words, these are God's words. These are not man's instructions, There's not, you know, they're not man's arbitrary instructions, these are God's specific instructions. God's intended, intentional instructions for the people of God. So, and, and they need to understand it, memorize it, and observe it. So we begin then in chapters one, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 to 20. Uh, this is the Lord's instruction. I'll first read the first three verses. I'll just read the sermon as we go along. I'll read the text as we go along. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, Take a census of the descendants of Kohath from among the sons of Levi, by their families, by their father's household, from 30 years and upward, even to 50 years old, all who enter the service to do the work in the tent of meeting. This command here is to take a census from the descendants of Kohath. Kohath is one of the sons of Levi. In the previous chapter, we had learned that Levi had three sons, uh, which formed basically these three Levitical families, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And uh, or Merari, uh, this command will be repeated for each of the Levitic of the of the Levite families. And notice, first of all, that only that the numbering only involves those that are thirty to fifty years old. Only those who are thirty to fifty year old basically are numbered for this work of entering in uh, to do this particular work in the t- in the tabernacle. Uh, why 30 to 50 year old? Well, I think uh, if you're in that 30 to 50 year old, you, you probably understand, or if you're older than 30 year old, you probably would pick it up pretty quickly. This, this age, 30 to 50 year old, is an age that reflects maturity and ability. Uh, it's at, you know, when you're not yet 30, uh, you are, tend to be young. You're, especially if you're a young man, these are all males here, uh, there, there's an immaturity that, it, that that we have that sometimes leads us to carelessness. And we're careless in the things that we're about, especially about things that are involving the, the most holy things of God. Uh, it's a life or death situation. And so you don't want just anyone, any immature person. You want someone who's mature handling these things. But why the upper limit? Well, there's an upper limit because at 50 years old, and, and you will not get this unless you are above 50 years old, because about 50 years old, my body, I started discovered, I was starting to fall apart. 
I started having ailments, I, I, I have multiple ailments. And it's, and it's at this age that we're, you, can start, may, you may start feeling more of the decay of our lives. And so there's a, it, this upper age limit reflects an ability. You want to be in that prime of life, 30, where you're mature, but not too old where you, your ability starts to decline as you're carrying things. And this, by the way, this work involves carrying, so there's a certain uh, strength that is required. So you don't want to be too old where your ability or inability could lead to accidents. Um, for instance, maybe a dropping of something or, or accidentally touching something that could uh, lead to your own death. Now, this, uh, these, this 30-year-old, 50-year-old range just kind of reminds us that of the necessity of these leaders, these servants, to, to be mature and able. That's kind of, uh, there's, a, there's a New Testament equivalent of that. Even as we think about leaders in Christ's church, God expects uh, leaders of Christ's church to have a, a maturity. There's a spiritual maturity to them, as well as an ability, for instance, to think about the, the qualification of deacons and deaconesses. They are not to be new converts, you know, or elders uh, and deacons. They're not to be new converts, not uh, neophytes. They're to be people who have a provenness. They've proven they're able to manage their own household well before they can uh, manage the household of God, take care of the household of God. But there's also an ability element here that you one must be able, and even think about our leaders, there must be a certain ability to teach and handle God's word. Anyways, we, uh, back to the Kohathites. The Kohathites' work, specific work, is detailed in verses 4 to 16 of this chapter. Let's pick it up. <clears throat> uh, just read verse 4, actually. This is the work of the descendants of Kohath in the tent of meeting concerning the most holy things. Note that they are charged with the most holy things. We've already mentioned this, but this tells us that these, that the fact that it says the most holy things, what does that tell you? That there are other holy things that are not the most holy things, right? There are less holy things, and there are holy things, and obviously the whole work of God, there are various things that are holy. Anything that involves God is holy. It's set apart for God. That's what the word holy means to be set apart. But there are some things that are moral. There are gradations of holy things in the tabernacle. The whole tabernacle is, uh, of course, is, is where God dwelt. God's presence dwelt among the Israelites. That's why it's called the tabernacle. It means the dwelling place, really. Uh, but the items, the, the work that the Kohathites are responsible for are the most holy things. So these are the, the things that are most uh, holy uh, before, uh, to, uh, for the Israelites as well as before God. And let's read then five, verse 5 to 16 and try to get a sense of how the holiness of these items, 5 to 16. And uh, I'll just throw up a photo here, kind of help us read this. When the camp sets out, Aaron and his son shall go in, and they shall take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. And they shall lay a covering of porpoise skin on it and shall spread over it a cloth of pure blue and shall insert its poles. Over the table of the bread of the presence, they shall also spread a cloth of blue and put on it the dishes and the pans and the sacrificial bowls and the jars for the drink offering, and the continual bread shall be on it. They shall spread over them a cloth of scarlet material and cover the same with a covering of porpoise skin, and they shall insert its poles. Then they shall take a blue cloth and cover the lampstand for the light, along with its lamps and its snuffers and its trays and all its oil vessels by which they serve it. And they shall put it and all its utensils in a covering of porpoise skin and shall put it on the carrying bars. Over the golden altar, they shall spread a blue cloth and cover it with a covering of porpoise skin and shall insert its poles. And they shall take all the utensils of service 
with which they serve in the sanctuary and put them in the blue cloth and cover them with a covering of porpoise skin and put them on the carrying bars. Then they shall take away the ashes from the altar and spread a purple cloth over it. They shall also put on it all its utensils by which they serve in connection with it, the fire pans, the forks and shovels and the basins, all the utensils of the altar, and they shall spread a cover of porpoise skin over it and insert its poles. When Aaron and his... When Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy objects and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the campus is set out, after that, the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them, so they will not touch the holy objects and die. These are the things in the tent of meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry. The responsibility of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, is the oil for the light and the fragrant incense and the continual grain offering and the anointing oil, the responsibility of all the tabernacle and of all that is in it with the sanctuary and its furnishings. We, that's, a, that's a mouthful and there's a lot of details and, and it is, we don't have time to kind of go into all the details, but we'll kind of just highlight a few details. But we read here at the end of verse 15 that the Kohathites are responsible. You notice they're responsible for carrying the, the most holy things, but they're actually responsible only for carrying the most holy things. It's not even that they're responsible for caring for the, the most holy things itself. Uh, it seems that its covering, its preparation is done by the, the, uh, the, the priests, the sons of Aaron. So it was, it was so, these things are so holy that the Kohathites could not touch these most holy things directly. They couldn't touch with hand. So whenever Israel would set out from camp, and it was time to set up camp, whenever basically the, the pillar of cloud would lift up from the tabernacle, remember that? That's when it would be the indication that the Israelites were to move. When they would set out, Aaron and his sons, that's the priests, and by the way, they technically belong to the Kohathite family, and they're, they're uh, one of the sons, they belong to one of the sons of the Kohathite family. Um, but first, these, these sons of Aaron would have come, and they would, then they would cover all the most holy things. They would cover it with, with various materials. And there, are five, uh, there are five main, I guess, furnishings that are listed here that are, that are need to be covered. They are the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the Table of the Presence, the Lampstand, uh, the Golden Altar of Incense, and the Bronze Altar. Uh, the first four are actually in the particular, underneath the, the tent, as you see here in the picture, and the bronze altar is actually in the courtyard. But these are all considered the most holy things of the Lord. God had actually given instructions uh, for the building of these things back in Exodus chapter 25 to 30. You can kind of read there if you want, you want to know more about these, read Exodus 25 to 30, and you're going to learn more about how God designed the building of these things. Now, Considering that God had given the instructions, because these things actually were made by human hands, right? These were made by the Israelites themselves, by some of their skilled laborers. Uh, they were made with materials that were donated by the Israelites, the people of God as well. So think about it. You know, uh, these people of God, they, they made it with their own hands. They provided the material for it. And so anything that they build, in a, anything that man builds, even with their own material, is, does that, that doesn't make it holy in and of themselves. And so it's, it's kind of it's significant that really these objects are not holy uh, simply in and of themselves because uh, uh, in, and, in and of themselves. These most holy things were holy because they were made according to God's instructions and they were set apart for God's use. They're made according to God's word. They're, they're, they're revealed by God's word, and they're set apart for God's use. 
They together, and, and because they're made by God's instructions and they're set apart God's use, they particularly, they, even ultimately, they represent God's presence. That is why these things are the most holy things. There are uh, so many details here to point out uh, that, can, that we simply reflect that these are, that this, that these are teaching God's holiness. Uh, but one of the things to point out is this, that if you notice, for in order for the Kohathites to carry them, all of these things have to be covered. They're covered either with a blue or scarlet or purple cloth. And, and there's significance to colors, just as you and I today, you see certain colors, it's symbolic of something to you and me. Well, in, the, in those days, a blue and purple and scarlet would have had their respective meanings. Even today, when you see blue, that's, a, that's significant among the Israelites because that's still their one, it's on their flag. It's in one of their national colors. And that's probably reflects some of the, their, uh, the, the law that God had given them, instruction to build these. Uh, and think about the Israelites. Actually, later on, Numbers going to see they're told to wear tassels at the end of their garments. Those tassels have cords of blue. And so there's a, it's, a, it's an identifying mark that these people belong to God. They have, they receive, they belong and identify with God in some way, okay? So, now, these, uh, on top, uh, in addition to this, this blue, scarlet, purple cloth, every single element is also covered with something called, at least in the NAS, it's called a porpoise skin, now, scholars actually uh, are debating still what that actually translates to. They're not for sure exactly, but they know it's, it's some kind of animal skin. Some of your translations will have goat skin. Uh, some, of it, well, some believe it's a, it's a badger skin. Uh, some believe just, you know, some translate just simply say fine leather, but, you know, an animal, the skin of, a, of an animal. Um, I personally probably lean towards a goat skin or, or badger skin, uh, even though the NAS has porpoise skin. It, well, a porpoise skin is a, a, just because a porpoise skin is consi- it's considered an unclean animal, so it'd be a little unusual for God to, to put a, use the skin of an unclean animal to, uh, uh, to cover his holy uh, tent. But, um, you know, you can't be dogmatic. Just know that the most important significant feature is that every ho- most holy thing is covered with an animal skin. Yeah, that's, that's the significant thing. It's covered with an animal skin so that the Kohathites would not be prevented from touching with their own hands directly the most holy things. And what is God doing in this? It's just kind of, does it look cool? Look nice? No, I think we all know that God is trying to teach us holiness, right? I think if you, you listen, God is trying to teach the Israelites and the Kohathites about his holiness. See, due to their own sinfulness, they could not be in direct contact with God. Remember, we just sung Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. Even Moses, probably the, the, most, uh, you know, the most godly of all the Israelites, the great prophet of God, he could not directly look at the Lord. He had to be put in a cleft of a rock, shielded from, from God's, so that he would not, shielded from God's holy glory, so that he would not die. See, God's teaching by the covering of the most holy things before the Kerothites care, that they cannot, that, these, that God is holy, and, and they, because they are sinful, they could not be in direct contact with it. And if they did, God's wrath, we would learn, would strike them dead. They would die. So a protection is needed for God's servant from God's holy wrath as they go about carrying God's most holy things. And it is no accident that an animal skin or is among the coverings. I think when we think of animal skins, what do you think about when you think of the first animal skin that was created? It was, go back to Genesis, Genesis chapter 3. 
when Adam and Eve found themselves naked, God provided for them a covering, an animal skin to protect them. And that even itself was a lesson for them that a life would be sacrificed to cover their sin before a holy God. And every object here, every single one covered by a goat skin, badger skin, porpoise skin, if you will, meant that there was a life, a living creature that had to die so to be, so to cover, to be a cover and protection so that you, sinful, the sinful Kohathites, born in sins, conceived in sin, could touch and handle the most holy things of God. Now I want to add that it's not the actual skins that have some kind of magical power. It's not like if you get porpoise skin that somehow it protects you from the wrath of God. It's not like that. So you start walking around, oh, I got a porpoise skin on me. That's not going to protect you from the wrath of God. Because God's wrath is infinite, and it can, it can transcend porpoise skin. What, but what God does is instructing these Israelites. Remember, these rituals are meant to be instructive. It's meant to instruct them. So as you put, see this porpoise skin on here, you're, you're reminded of the necessity of someone have, something having died in your place. And it requires you as a worshiper to have faith that God has provided something to die in your place. Remember, because they've already had the law. They have all the offerings already. So they understand that animals have to die to cover their sin. And then so in covering these objects with the whole animal skins, the Israelites were displaying faith that their sins would be covered by the sacrifice of an animal. There's one more significant detail in this as well. That the Ark of the Covenant, and then you kind of look a little closer, receives the Ark of the Covenant. It's right in the, in the Holy of Holies. Okay? It's right in the, you see in the back there. It's, the, it's in this place called the Holy Holies. There's nothing else in there besides the Ark of the Covenant and the things in the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. It's, it's there alone, and no one can go in there. Even the high priest could only go there once a year. But this, in addition, whereas everything else is covered by cloth and by porpoise skin, the Ark of the Covenant gets one additional covering. One additional covering. It is covered also with the veil, you see that veil between the Holy of Holies and the, and the holy place? That veil, when the priests come in, they take that veil and they cover the ark with it first. That's the first thing, it's, I think in verse 5, I believe, or so, uh, in this text. This covering, which uh, is normally hung between the two places to prevent anyone from accidentally going into the, the very holy place because God's presence dwelt uh, above that mercy, on that mercy seat that was above the Ark of the Covenant. And so this additional kind of uh, picture of the protection that is required because of the, that which is symbolized God's very presence among Israel. And of course, we know the significance of this veil as New Testament Christians. This veil that between, it when it was, uh, was in, in the temple between the holy place and the most holy place. And that veil was torn in two from top to bottom on the day that Jesus died. For our sins. And that was a symbol. And that was a symbol that the separation between God and man was removed through the death of Christ on our behalf. But until then, at this point, the fact that the Ark of the Covenant has to be covered with this veil was a, also a constant visual reminder for these Kohathites and all the Israelites as they're carrying this that there is a, they, need that, they need that protection from God's wrath and God's holiness. Its use emphasizes God, not only God's holiness, but our own sinfulness. And that 
God's holiness and our sinfulness, the sinfulness of man, has not changed. Think about that. And so even as, and the holiness of God is so great that it, it goes, it, it, that, that requires us to, we will not be able to approach him directly unless we have a covering between us. And I think you all, many of us, if you're here, we understand that that covering is no longer the veil, no longer these uh, animal skins. It's the covering of Jesus Christ who died in our place. But the holiness of God is so great that it goes beyond just touching the most holy things for the Goethites. They can't even look at these things. Look at verse 17 to 20 with me. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, do not let the tribe of the families of the Kohathites be cut off from among the Levites, but do this to them that they may live and not die when they approach the most holy objects. Aaron and his son shall go in and assign each of them to his work and to his load, but they shall not go in to see the holy objects even for a moment or they will die. Wow. And so we see that they can't even see it. They can't even just go in, oh, I just want to take a quick look. You know, uh, because that's, it's rep, it, the, these most holy objects represent God's, God's presence, God's, God's perfection, God's holiness. And anyone who would even look upon it uh, with it uncovered is almost like looking upon God's glory. And there would be an immediate judgment. Uh, God's wrath would be poured out. See, in these instructions, these and so we think about last week, these rituals, these, these repeated instructions, and how they ought to carry the most holy things, God is teaching his people something. God is teaching Israel that man is sinful and God is holy, and you cannot touch or even look upon holy God lest you die. And the only way that they don't die is because they are first covered. These items that they touch are covered by the priests with the skin of an animal slain in their place. And so that's what they would learn. And so we take that to us today. You and I, in a similar way, cannot approach God in our sinful state lest we die. And God is merciful. He is not calling us to stand before him right now. But one day, when we die, we will stand before him. All of us will stand before him. All of us will stand in judgment before him. And before a holy God, how will, what will cover us? What will protect us from his wrath and his perfect justice? If we go out there uncovered, we will perish. We will be condemned to eternity in hell and the lake of fire. And so we can only, print, we can only approach and be, uh, God, in an, even in judgment, by being covered with Jesus, God's son who died in our place, the great high priest who offered his life once and for all on our behalf. And it's through faith in him that we stand before and serve a holy God. And see, that affects how we serve, that we, we as we serve, we need to serve with the holy God. That's, by the way, that's why we, we don't just let generally un, those who are non-Christians serve in the life of the church on a regular basis. You, may, you know, we might say, oh, you're going to do a volunteer for this or that. But generally, we don't let people, uh, those who are, are unsaved, not yet Christians. It's not that you can't do the work if you're a non-Christian. Sure, you might even do it better than some of us. But the fact is, because the work is holy, therefore, those who do the work of God must themselves be holy and pro- properly clothed in the righteousness of Christ. For God's wrath will judge. It will judge those who are, serve him in an unholy manner. Now we move on. So that's what we spend a lot of time on that because that's the law, big section of the text. We'll move on a little more quickly. Our second part of the census is the, the census of the Gershonites. The Gershonites. And they are responsible for the, 
for the curtains and the coverings of the tabernacle. We'll read all verses 21 to 28 today. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take a census of the sons of Gershon also by their father's households, by their families from 30 years and upward to 50 years old. You shall number them all who enter to perform the service to do the work in the tent of meeting. This is the service of the families of the Gershonites in serving and in caring. They shall carry the curtains of the tabernacle and the tent of meeting with its covering and the covering of porpoise skin that is on top of it and the screen for the doorway of the tent of meeting and the hangings of the court and the screen for the doorway of the gate of the court which is around the tabernacle and the altar and the cords and all the equipment for the service and all that is to be done they shall perform. All the service of the sons of the Gershonites in all their loads and all their work shall be performed at the command of Aaron and his sons. And you shall assign to them as a duty all their loads. This is the service of the families of the sons of the Gershonites in the tent of meeting. And their duty shall be under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. We see uh, kind of pretty straightforwardly the Gershonites are responsible for all the various curtains and coverings. All the things that basically hang uh, from the framework of the tabernacle. And, and, while, and these are all part of the tabernacle where God's dwelling. So they themselves, in themselves, are, they're holy too. They're set apart for God. You can just do anything with them. They were holy things, but they're not the most holy things. And so and you'll notice that there are no warnings about, oh, you can't touch them. In fact, they're not actually covered at all. Uh, they're, they're just you know, handled. They're wrapped up. and They're handled by these, uh, the Gershonites with their own, directly by their hands. They don't have to be afraid to touch these items. In fact, these items, uh, especially the, the outside curtains, would have been visible to many Israelites throughout the day, their daily activity. But these were, this was the charge of the Gershonites, to carry all the coverings, the curtains, the things that hang from uh, the tabernacle framework. But the, even so, that these coverings are instructive. These, these are not the coverings, uh, these are the coverings of the tabernacle itself, and they served in part to protect, to shield the presence of God who was in uh, the tabernacle from the rest of Israel. Um, and what is, what is inside the tabernacle, of course, is, is God himself and is holy and therefore cannot be approached uh, by, uh, without, this, without, uh, the, without these, the curtains and coverings and, and, and animal skins as well that's, you see, that are also referred to here as well. But even in light of that, it's kind of similar principles, the first point. But what I want to point out, kind of just for our observation, our application, is that what stands out probably to the most, the everyday Israelite in reading this section would have been that these are the instructions to Gershon. And Gershon, remember, is the firstborn son of Levi. Um, and it would have been very, it, it is very unusual to have instructions given to sons of, a, sons of Levi and not start with Gershon. In fact, it starts with Kohath, the secondborn. They would have expected, the Israelites would have expected that, uh, that the Gershonites would have been first, and that the Gershonites, being the oldest, being firstborn, would have probably received the most, uh, the most significant, the most holy responsibility. They would have received the greatest responsibility because they're, they're the oldest born. But instead, this family is given a secondary place. It's actually on the west of the tabernacle, it's behind the entrance. So it's actually not even secondary. It's kind of like almost near the bottom, okay? But we'll just say secondary. They're given a secondary place, and they're given a secondary responsibility. They're not in charge of the most holy things. They're, you know, they're not the sons of Aaron who actually get to do the sacrifices. 
But they get to carry the curtains, the drapes, you know, the hangings. But what we learn from this, even as we think about it, is that God sovereignly chooses whom he wills to serve him in whatever he wills, right? God's sovereign in his gifting and anointing of different individuals. He can anoint whomever he wishes to be king, to be, uh, to, to, be a, to be high priest, to be an elder, to be the custodian in a church. God, has, God is sovereign in all his, his assignments and giftings that he gives to, to his people. And like the Levites and priests then, the servants of Christ today serve the Lord again according to his assigned gifts and ministries. And we're reminded that we each uh, have a part. We, we know that we each have a part in place. We've kind of mentioned this in the class. And when we think about it, and you think about it, I know for most of us, we, we decided, we wanted, I want to serve in that area of the ministry. I want to serve in this ministry. But hopefully in your process of deciding what area of ministry you would serve, you consider, what did God gift me to do? What does God give me a burden to do? Because it's not this what I want to do. It's what, what does God want me to do? And when I ask what God wants me to do, then I think, well, what did God give me as gifting, as abilities, as skills, as desires? And so when we're given to a task and you're serving there and you find joy in it and you're, you're really uh, thriving and flourishing in it, then you can rejoice thing that God sovereignly placed me here. We acknowledge that God gives us each a part and a place. And, and our holy God makes no mistakes. And sometimes you might move around until you find that right place, but God makes no mistakes about the gifting he gives you and really the, his, the ministry that he wants you to serve in or the kinds of ministries that he wants you to serve in. You know, some ministries in this church are like the curtain carriers. You know, they're, they're not glamorous areas of service. They are nets, but they're not, uh, they're really not missed until they didn't, they don't, they didn't do their job. It's kind of basically, it's like our custodian, you know. Uh, thank you, Tony, brother Tony. You know, he does his work every week, you know, you, you don't notice. As soon as he doesn't do his work, and uh, you all notice. At least, uh, at least uh, his, his bosses notice, probably. Yeah. <laughs> but we notice it when the work isn't done. But there's a lot of curtain carriers in this church, right? Many of you are them, faithfully, our AV people our nursery children's workers, people who just go about doing their work, their, 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 and because they, they have a gift of serving. You have a gift of serving. And you just love to serve wherever there's need. It doesn't have to be glamorous. You don't need that, that in front kind of visual per, kind of a, a feedback. You just simply, out of love for God, you want to serve. And there's these, you find these words, you, you do the yard work, you clean the church, you, you work the AV, you care for nursery, you do, you, you, uh, you're the one who sits, stands in the front and kind of just checks people in whether they're attended or not attended, you know? There are a lot of, a lot of you guys out there, a lot of words, and I, I didn't mention all of them. But you do so for the love and glory of God. You're the curtain carriers, you're the Gershonites. And there's a role in the sovereignty of God because he is in, and he makes no mistakes in doing that. Hopefully, if you find yourselves ever grunted, scrunted, maybe another ministry is, is for you. But if you feel that that's what God's gift you to do, then do it for the glory of God. Do it to the glory of God. All right? Thirdly, we move on to the third part. Third, uh, uh, we see a same, the same principle at work even in the instruction to the Merarites uh, in verse 29 to 33 and who are in charge of the framework. And let's work through this pretty quickly too. As for the sons of Merari, you shall number them by their families, by their father's households, from 30 years and upward, even to 50 years old. 
You shall number them, everyone who enters the service, to do the work of the tent of meeting. Now this is the duty of their loads. For all their service in the tent of meeting, the boards of the tabernacle and its bars and its pillars and its sockets and the pillars around the court and their sockets and their bags and their cords with all their equipment and with all their service, and you shall assign each man by name the items he is to carry. This is the service of the families of the sons of Merari, according to all their service in the tent of meeting, under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. So the, the Merarites are responsible. You see here this long list of, of little, you know, you can imagine these guys are the mechanical engineers, you know. They're, they're given the boards, the, the bars, the pillars, the sockets, the pegs, the cords. They say, uh, you know, you're responsible for it, and then you've got to put it together, okay. You've got to take it apart, and you've got to put it together. You know, that's your, that's your ja- task. Uh, but mostly it's talking about carrying them. And there's numerous, there's so many numerous parts involved that each man, we see, is assigned by name the items that he is in charge of to carry. No part of God's tabernacle is left unaccounted for. A particular note, uh, just kind of additional, is that here, and, and in fact, the two previous families as well, each family's work is directed by someone else. They're directed not by someone in their own family, but they're directed by one of the sons of Aaron. They're directed by the priests. The Merarites, the Gershonites, they're overseen by Ithamar, we learn, and uh, the Kohathites are overseen by, uh, by Eliezer, uh, the, other, uh, the other son of Aaron. So while, uh, so while these, each families are overseen by one of the sons of Aaron, Ithamar and Eliezer, Ithamar and Eliezer, are, we understand, are overseen by Aaron, their father, who is the, the, the chief priest at this time. Aaron himself, is, it, has, uh, it receives his instruction from Moses, right? Moses, who, and Moses receives his instruction and, uh, from God. And what we see here is that there's a chain of, chain of authority. Uh, sometimes we call it chain of command in our days, in a military term. There's a clear chain of You might call it, uh, there's a hierarchy of, of authority, and leadership within the Old Testament, a nation of Israel. It starts with God on the top, then Moses, then Aaron, then the sons of Aaron, then the Levites. And even under the Levites, they have authority over the people of God insofar as basically keeping the the layperson away from approaching the tabernacle lest they die. And so we see here this, in not only this chapter, but even in the other chapters, chapters 1, 2, with regards to the military, the warriors, that there's, there's clear authority. There's change of authority. And authority is not bad. Sometimes, you know, in our world today, there's some of those anti-authoritarian kind of attitudes in our world. That, that should not be among, among believers. We understand that God is authority, himself is authority, and he sets authorities over people all across the world. And we as the people of God, whether you're in a position of authority or under, under authority, that we must learn to be under and submissive to the respective authorities. The same thing goes in the church today as well. That there's authorities, a similar chain of authority in the church of Christ. And we know that it begins at the top with Christ, who is the head of the church. One of the things that, uh, that has been on my mind as I, we've made various decisions about, um, about the pandemic as elders is that who, is I, this very simple principle, who is the head of this church? Who's the head of this church? Christ is the head of the church. And we always try to make decisions that are where they reflect that Christ is the head of the church. Even as we also have a responsibility to submit to, uh, to governmental authorities, we want to make decisions that reflect that Christ is the head of the church, that, that flows out of this, this conviction. Because Christ is the head church, and how, do, how does Christ lead, lead this church? Christ leads the church through a group of men in this church called the elders, 
Hopefully you know an elder. I'm one of the elders of the church, the pastors. But there are other, uh, there's about 10 of us in this church that are elders of this church. He leads the elders who then in turn oversee the many deacons and deaconesses that are servant leaders in this church. And those deacons and deaconesses in turn lead the various people, ministries of this church body. See, there is a, also a similar hierarchy and a chain of authority a chain in the church of Christ. And that's why the Bible has commands such as obey your leaders and submit to them, right? Because there are people that are over us. And this underlies, uh, this, this underlies our conviction, even as a church, as an, elder, as an elder-led church or elder-ruled church, sometimes we say it. And this is in contrast to a congregational rule church. If you're new to church, by the way, we're, we're an elder-led church. That means we believe that the Christ leads through this church through the, the plurality of elders. That The final authority in the church rests in these group of godly men that God has ordained to, that God has set apart and ordained to, to lead this church. We call them elders. And, through, and the decisions that they make, the unanimous decisions that they make are, we believe, are God's leading them. We believe that Christ does that, and that's our conviction here, as opposed to a congregational rule where we believe that the final authority rests with, with the congregation, and so that every decision that may be made has to be put to a vote, for instance. But if you're a member, I, I hope you'll see the relevance of this, what I'm about to say. And so when the church asks, when the church elders ask the church to, for instance, to wear masks, you look in your bulletin today, wear masks in the church, then unless it is a violation of God's word in your conscience then we must submit to that request, right? And I see many of you are submitting to that request. Or when the elders make a unanimous decision and call the church members to a vote of affirmation, as we do occasionally, uh, we're asking the members to affirm your conviction on how Christ leads this church. If you believe that Christ leads his church through the unanimous decision of the elders, then then as you come to a vote of affirmation as we have in this church, then what you need to know, what you need to understand is, and keep in mind as you come to that vote is this. You need to understand the the type of men who have made the decision. The kind of men who have made the decision, this unanimous decision that they believe after having studied the word of God, having considered the circumstances, having sought counsel, and come to that, what kind of men are they? Are they Christ-like men? Are they men who have shown faithfulness in handling the word of Christ? And if they are Christ-like men by the general character of their life, and if they are men who are faithful to teach you the word of Christ, then if you believe that Christ leads the church through the plurality of elders, then when you, make, when you come for a vote of affirmation, you're going to say, your vote yes is a vote to say that I trust that Christ leads in their decisions. Even if you don't know the details of their decisions. Right? Let him who has ears hear. Your, your, your vote is an act of submission to their leadership and ultimately to the leadership of Christ. And hopefully that's kind of helpful to you. That's kind of a, a little longer application, but uh, timely, I hope. The last part of the census we move to is the summary. as the summary of the census, and that's in verses 34 to 49. Oh, I missed the memorize. Oh, 34 to 49. And we talk about, and it's really everyone else. It's all the Levites, everyone. And they are in charge together as a whole for the tent of meeting. Verse 34 to 49, and let's read all of it, the, the reign of the chapter. So Moses and Aaron, the leaders of the congregation, numbered the sons of the Kohathites by their families and by their fathers' households from 30 years and upward even to 50 years old. Everyone who entered the service for work in the tent of meeting. 
Their numbered men by their families were 2,750. These are the numbered men of the Kohathite families. Everyone who was serving in the tent of meeting whom Moses and Aaron numbered according to the commandment of the Lord through Moses. The numbered men of the sons of Gershon by their families and by their father's households from 30 years and upward, even to 50 years old, everyone who entered the service for work in the tent of meeting, their numbered men by their families, by their father's households, were 2,630. These are the numbered men of the families of the sons of Gershon, everyone who was serving in the tent of meeting, whom Moses and Aaron numbered according to the commandment of the Lord. The numbered men of the families of the sons of Merari, by their families, by their father's households, from 30 years and upward, even to 50 years old, everyone who entered the service for work in the tent of meeting, their numbered men by their families were 3,200. These are the numbered men of the families of the sons of Merari, whom Moses and Aaron numbered according to the commandment of the Lord through Moses. All the numbered men of the Levites, whom Moses and Aaron and the leaders of Israel numbered, by their families and by their fathers' households, from 30 years and upward, even to 50 years old, everyone who could enter to do the work of service and the work of caring in the tent of meeting, their numbered men were 8,580. According to the commandment of the Lord through Moses, they were numbered, everyone by his serving or caring. Thus, these were his numbered men, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. There are many repeated phrases here in this section, and, and all of them are significant. All of them we can kind of draw out uh, uh, spiritual truths from. Uh, but the one that stands out and that I want to point out for us is this repeated phrase and theme. It's a repeated phrase, not just here, but it's, it's actually the theme in, these first four, uh, theme in these first four chapters. And that's the phrase, according to the commandment of the Lord. According to the commandment of the Lord. See, Moses and Aaron and the leaders of Israel were told to number the Levites. And this is what they did. They did it according to the commandment of the Lord. Verse 37, they numbered the Kohathites according to the commandment of the Lord. Verse 41, they numbered the Gershonites according to the commandment of the Lord. Verse 45, they numbered the Merarites according to the commandment of the Lord. We see it twice, actually, in verse 49. According to the commandment of the Lord, through Moses, they were numbered just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And so what we draw from this is that God's holiness requires obedience from his leaders and from his people. God's holiness requires, uh, requires of us holiness in turn. We are to be holy as he is holy. We are to be perfect as he is perfect because he's our God. And, and though we, because of our sin, none of us are holy and none of us are perfect, then we, that's why we need Christ. And only through Christ can we then have the the, be, be set free to strive and aim for holiness. But obedience, in, as those of us who are in Christ, obedience ought to mark the people who serve the Lord. Holiness. It's being, it's, there's the idea of being set apart, but there's a holiness too of, of moral holiness, a godliness, a Christ-likeness. You know, Jesus walked on the earth. Everyone would know that he was different because of his holiness. He would be so different. And we, as Christians who follow him, we, we ought not to strive to be like the world. We don't want to be just like one of them. We, want, we ought to strive to be like Christ, which means that we ought to stand out in the crowds because of the, the, the convictions and, and the way we live, even if we cannot do it perfectly. 1 Peter 1, 14 to 16, uh, 
Just a final uh, kind of cross verse for us. As obedient children, Peter writes to the saints, he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Don't keep living on like you did in the past. Verse 15, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. The Holy One, God has called you to be his to, to be his follower, to be his worshiper. He's called you to be his, his children, his, his sons and daughters. He's called you to be his servants. He set you apart through his son, Jesus Christ. And so just as he's called you, so you ought to be, you and I ought to strive to be holy in all our behavior, in all our conduct, because God is holy. So that's, uh, these are the four parts of the census that hopefully gives us a better picture of God's holiness and our own need for holiness. The census of the working Levites reveals to us a holy God, a holy God who, who cannot be approached by, un, by sinful man and so has to, requires a certain way to approach him and worship. There needs to be certain covering even over the, the most holy things. There's instructions, particular instructions that they are to follow. And this holy God expects holiness in, in, of those who serve him, not only in their own personal lives, but holiness in how they follow the instructions of God. They, they do the work of ministry according to the commandment of God. You know, as brothers and sisters, as those, of, uh, those who worship and serve Christ today, we need this reminder. I need this reminder. Sometimes it's easy to forget God's holiness. We're sometimes so caught up in, in God's, in his imminence, how he's close to us. He's like a friend to us that we forgot that God is holy. He's a transcendent God. And we need to treat God with holiness. Don't move. God is holy, holy, holy. And we are people of unclean lips and hearts. And woe is us if we would serve God in our unholiness. But God in his mercy has provided a covering in his son through whose death in our place enables us to serve and worship our God. Several questions for us to reflect upon. As we approach God in worship and service, do you approach God's worship and service with, first of all, with your sins covered? Are you, do you serve God and worship him with faith in the death and resurrection of Christ? Because that is required. You cannot come and serve, just whole, uh, and, and serve in the holy things of the Lord with, with your, sin, un, your sin completely uncovered. It leads to a worthless, worthless labor and it leads to, continues to lead to judgment. Secondly, do you approach God's worship service with joy and contentment in that which he has called you to do? Wherever you're serving, are you, do you have joy and contentment in that? Because you know that God has gifted you and God has called you to that place. Thirdly, do you approach God's worship service with a submissive heart to those Christ has placed over you? you know, there's, a, there's truly, there is a, there's elders and shepherds and disciplers and, uh, and deacons and deacon and ministry leaders that God has placed over our lives. And do we, do we serve with the appropriate submission? And do you approach God's worship service with a desire to live holy lives according to the commandment of the Lord? Do we strive to live holy? Or we kind of think, you know, we basically taking Christ's death for granted and just live our lives with, with sin, ongoing sin, thinking that, oh, hey, well, Christ died for me, so he's going to forgive me every time. And he will. But that's not an excuse for us to live that way. 
Let us strive to be holy for our, as our Lord is holy. Let's, uh, I think this is a good time. Let me invite the worship team to come up and to lead us in our final song, and, and then I will, uh, I'll close us in a time of prayer. As I close, in, in, close this time in a prayer to prayer. Father, we thank you for this reminder of your holiness, and thank you, Lord, that, uh, the, and, and not only your holiness, but our sinfulness. Father, if we were to continue to serve you and worship you apart from Christ, we would be justly condemned for the sinners that we are. Well, Lord, we thank you that you provided a covering in Christ. We thank you for the, the truths that are taught to us in the rituals of the, of the transportation of the tabernacle, the work of the Levites. And we pray that as they learn of your holiness and their, the need for them to be holy in themselves, Father, may we grow in our understanding of you and, and strive for a greater holiness in our life. Help us not only morally to live according to your word, but to, in the carrying out of your, your ministry and your work, help us to do so in accordance with your commands. That you would be glorified and honored as God. Thank you, Father, for your word. Lord, use us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.